How do you balance brand voice, aesthetics, and usability in your website and marketing assets? That question is at the heart of this episode. I spoke to Sean Nichols, founder of Metric, a UX design firm, and Chelsea Castle, head of content for Lavender AI, a sales email coach. And I'm your host, EJ Brown, founder of Prism B2B, a marketing consultancy specializing in multimedia content strategies. Let's dive in. Sean, Chelsea, super excited to have both of you together. This is my experiment to see what happens when you get two people that don't, three people really, that don't know each other in a room to talk about content and brand. I want to just give you a chance to introduce yourself. Chelsea, why don't you start and tell us a little bit about what you do at Lavender, what Lavender is, and also since you haven't been there that long, just your journey of moving into Lavender. Yeah, for sure. And thank you so much for for having me today. Excited to chat with you and Sean. So I lead content at Lavender. Lavender AI is a sales email coach. It is an in-inbox email assistant to help you write better emails. So it does not write emails for you. It helps you write them and get started and help sellers all around the world write better emails faster and get more replies. I lead content and I say I lead content and I don't share a title because we don't have titles, which is pretty cool. And is kind of one of our many nods to how we do things differently. Previously, I led content at Chili Piper, which is another SaaS company. I worked in email marketing before that, as well as a branding agency and journalism is my background. So I've had a pretty interesting journey kind of getting into content marketing and SaaS. Sweet. Sean, tell us about you. Uh, yeah, my name is Sean. I am the visual designer for a company called Fastspring. We sit as a middleman facilitating software sales across the globe. And I own a creative agency called Metric, which is rooted in applying UX principles to basically everything we deploy, but really intending to, to leverage that in the digital space and era. I was a high school dropout and then turned self-taught designer and have been fortunate enough to be able to actually be in a few rooms where people would let me speak up and, and, and ultimately share. And part of that has led to, to my creative career. So yeah, I've been doing this, oh man, probably like 10, 10 or 12 years professionally, probably about five or six, but yeah, excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Yeah. So this came about Chelsea disclosure. My last day at Fastspring was Friday. So I'm moving into full-time freelancing around content strategy and yeah, I'm excited, nervous, all the things, but I had the, I had the pleasure of working with Sean for the past month or so, I think two months, maybe before, before moving on. And we've had a lot of conversations around usability of content and branding and one of the things I wanted to talk about with Lavender is like Lavender is building up a reputation for just having a really unique, um, bold brand. And so I want to talk to you about like how it works, you know, and where content fits into that bold brand. And then also just have Sean's thoughts about like Sean has particularly particular unique thoughts, I guess, around like usability of, of uniqueness and like how to do that well. So, so Chelsea, let's start like, I mean, what, what do you love about like Lavender's really spirit or ethos? Yeah. Great way to frame that question. And I'm excited to hear Sean's usability thoughts on it as well. 
With lavender, so I guess I'll even back up a minute. I was impacted by a riff last year, and I mentioned that because there might be a lot of listeners who are also in a similar boat, unfortunately. And when I was in that situation, I kind of took some time to think really deeply about what I want to do next. And I wanted to land somewhere that was purpose-driven, that I enjoyed my work, that was taking me away from my family. And that ethos of lavender is what made me choose lavender (laughs) at the end of the day. They're really all about helping and just knowing like if we just help people just genuinely don't expect anything in return. There is some element of reciprocity, but we just kind of like help others and genuinely care about just like working hard and helping where we can and don't care about anything else like outside of just focusing on our users. So that ethos and just really honing in on the shared human aspect of sales and marketing really drove me to what they were building. So there's three co-founders, Casey, Will Allred, and Will Balance. My conversations with the Wills, they talked a lot about, yes, the ethos of help, but also the power of, of email and how Lavender kind of helps us remember that there's a human on the other end. You know, I think it's hard to write a cold email, whether you're a job seeker or a recruiter or a seller or a marketer, or like my neighbor who works in nonprofits. It's really hard. And it's just another form of communication. We're not really taught how to communicate and how to write emails and, and how to have those conversations as humans. So we help with that. And that's part of the spirit of the brand and what I think leads to it being so bold. And also they just want to do things differently. If you've ever read the book, Zag, it's, it's kind of also like at the heart of the company. And I appreciate that you said bold and not not boring because that's also like a very buzzy thing these days. And we just want to do things different and just kind of stand out and, and entertain when we're also being helpful and informative. Love it. And can you give a couple of examples of content you're working on? Just Yeah. So the company is pretty young for the stage of growth that we're at. So in two years, they've kind of gotten to where they are, um, or we, you know, a few months in, I'm still saying they, by having all of this rent like content on LinkedIn, honestly, that's a big source of their growth, like almost 100% marketing led. So I have a treasure trove of content that I can then turn into owned content on our website. So I'm working on framework guides, long form, short form blogs, lots of repurposing, lots of Twitter threads, lots of data driven content as well. So really focused heavily on, on building and lots of writing, where I'm usually kind of leading a team and orchestrating the strategy. So I'm kind of doing both right now. Nice. Sean, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So I, how this came about, I was looking at different websites for venture capital firms and growth equity firms. And I will, I will not name the website that I was looking at. It was really pretty and really interesting. And but Sean, you had some opinions about it. And I, I want you to jump in because I thought, and by the way, none of this is about lavender. Like we're, we're not in any way going to do any sort of lavender teardown or anything. This is about like what I'm hoping this conversation turns into is like, how do you be bold and useful and usable and, and center your users? So, and I think you both will have thoughts on that, but Sean, can you, can you just explain a little bit about like what, when I showed you that website, like what your thoughts were, do you remember? I, I do. Yeah, I think that, so when we discuss things like brand, we, we tend to consider them as being like strategic positions in a market. And the reality of it is, is most marketers now have kind of universally accepted their brand. It's just how the market feels about you. And so a big emphasis is put on how beautiful a site is. 
and specifically how aesthetically pleasing a site can be. And in UX, we have a principle, it's the aesthetic usability principle, which kind of reinforces that ideology. But you start to realize that sites that are perceived as being beautiful still have to function. And that's not like original to me. That's kind of a, a vernacular that's accepted. But sites require the ability and experiences in general, I, I tend to call them experiences. They require the ability to be able to, I mean, to, to, to what Chelsea is saying, support a user through the actual journey. And so oftentimes what you'll do is you'll, you'll prioritize something like how a site or an experience might look. And you'll actually lose sight of, okay, but you're not really putting yourself in that, that person's shoes and understanding where they are relative to the rest of, of their journey through your site and their buying process. And I think that actually triggered like the ease of acquisition theory that I have, which is that like everything that we will ever do in a digital space is basically just an exchange, right? Information, financial, whatever it is. And I would probably say at a philosophical level, that's probably most of life, but not my, not my forte. So I think that there's an element of like, if you realize that there is a give and a take and, and that reciprocity that was already alluded to, then if you prioritize the experience of someone on your site or, or in your shop, I mean, I, I relate it very much to brick and mortar that you really, you, you see the return on investment. And I think that's one of those things where there was a period where C-suite was very dismissive of the notion and, and we're seeing a change and a pivot at that level. And it's really exciting. So there's a lot of opportunity, but yeah, pretty doesn't make usable. I wish, I wish it did. <laughs> and my job would be a lot easier. <laughs> I agree. I think there's like an element of adding, like throwing copy into the mix too, right? Like the site might be pretty, but what is it saying? And yeah. the design and the copy need to work together for that usability and creating that nice experience that you're mentioning. Yeah. And I think I experienced this when, when we started to work together, but I'm a big proponent for design's job is to get out of the way. And, and it's not necessarily an art, it's more of a communication and that sometimes can throw people for a loop, but the intention is to, to be able to drag interest into where we're, we're trying to really, you know, bring focal to right. And, and focus on, but the ultimate goal is to inform them. And that's really more so done at the copy level. So I'm sure there are a few designers that would, would, would argue and that's okay. I welcome the conversation, but I think copy is what delivers the message. Whereas design is what's kind of the vessel, right? Kind of the package that we put it into, but ultimately that message has to come through and, and copy it. I mean, it can in visual elements, but it's going to require the same amount of time and it's not skimmable. <laughs> Okay, so there's the usability of sites. The, there's the design getting out of the way so that the message comes across. And Chelsea, how do you do that? How do you get a message across and make it simple, easy to pick up or consume while still having that voiciness that you were talking about? Like, where's the balance or is it about balance? Between usability and, and kind of brand voice. Yeah. Yeah, or like the consumption of an idea, I guess. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think it might even be helpful to maybe define how we all think about usability. Yeah, I would love to, yeah, I would just kind of love to hear everyone's thoughts on that. To me, like when I think about usability, I think about accessibility is kind of, I think the first thing that comes to mind is ensuring that there's no friction for a reader or a viewer or a watcher or however someone is consuming a piece of content, ensuring that it's it's fully like accessible and there's no friction for them 
understanding it, reading it, et cetera. Would you all agree or do you have different definitions of usability? I'm curious. I think, I think I would append. I don't think I would disagree at all. I think accessibility is a key focal point, but I think it's a little bit more macro, in my opinion, where it's, it's not so much uh, friction to a specific group or a specific audience, be it that they're, you know, they have a, a need for a support or, or a disability or, you know, just the average user mitigating friction in general is traditionally the, the way that I approach usability. And so EJ knows this because we work together, but I like to say that I'm the Neanderthal of the team. And it's it's intentional because I, I advocate for what used to be called dumbing it down. Now to me, just it resonates as being more usable. And that's across all mm-hmm. facets, right? It's the sales cycle, it's marketing, it's, it's operations. It's just, I think really, I think it's pertainable to everything. But yeah, I, I think I, I agree completely just at a, at a more macro level, I guess, where it's, it's just mitigating barrier to entry and, and, and friction. But yes, a, a huge element of that is accessibility. Like that's it's probably one of the more important elements, candidly, because friction is a lot easier to mitigate for the overwhelming majority of non-divergent individuals. Yeah, and I definitely meant accessibility in like a general sense also. Just like, yeah. is it accessible to anyone? I think we always think that accessibility in the disability sense is about like a screen reader or something like that. But it's a lot bigger than that. Like a lot of times I can't read someone's carousel on my phone, like on LinkedIn. Like I don't technically have any vision, you know, issues. But anyway, get back to your question. (laughs) I think when you're writing, you know, at a technical sense, in a tactical sense, when you're writing, you almost have a checklist in your mind, or at least like I do. You're, You're writing content, you're writing it in, your voice, but also adapting it to whatever your brand voice is. Uh, I've always spent a lot of time, especially from my branding agency days, implementing like a guide on how you actually incorporate a brand voice and tone. And I've always led a team of writers. And each time we all write a piece, we're following that brand guide, but there's always going to be a little nuance because we're all different people. And I like mm-hmm. that person about personality coming through, but that's one piece, right? So there's like a checklist when I'm writing, is this on tone? Is this like, am I, am I on brand? Am I staying true to me? Am I using contractions? Am I not using contractions? And then you have to think about a lot of like business use cases and the persona that that particular piece is to and how you incorporate the product and how you incorporate CTAs and in-links. So there's almost just like a checklist that runs in the back of my head subconsciously when you're writing. But then I think, and part of that checklist to me is, is this accessible? Is it usable? Are there, is it clear? Like I think clarity is a big piece of usability when we're talking about copy clear is kind and a lot of times you have to connect the dots in order to be clear you can't assume anything about your reader also when you're writing so those are some of the things I think about and I think I I guess it is a balance between brand voice and usability because some brand voices I'm trying to think of an example can kind of get in the way of that like if it's like super cutesy or super snarky some of those brand voice elements could potentially get in the way of being clear. And then is it usable? So I do think it's a balance and you just kind of have to write with a lot of that in mind and then have some really good editors and also Rick get really good at self-editing to keep those elements in mind also. Yeah, I just want to chime in. I think that the other side of that too is, is yes, brand voice when being 
super in one direction, but also I think complexity of information. So EJ and I were talking about Niels Norman Group earlier, and the reality of it is, is well, I love their content. I could not send that to my wife and and expect my wife to have the same level of response that I would have based on me being the persona that it's catered towards. But I think in an ideal world, if there was, you know, a way to be able to, to marry the two personas so you could have more accessibility is the word we're using here. I think that that would be a really, really strong strategic point. And I think as technology improves and we have more and more ML and AI, it'll be really interesting to see, like, do you want, you know, where are you and, and, and your understanding and your mental model? And then how do we present this information? Um, I 100% think eventually there'll be content, both written and video and, and similar that are just, it changes depending on who's consuming the content, almost like an actual interaction with someone who is a subject matter expert. That'll be 20 years from now, probably, but still, it'll be rad. I'm stoked to, to be really old and not understand it in 20 years. It's <laughs> a great point. Yeah, some of the things that have come up for me recently, actually, when I joined FastSpring, something that I hadn't given a lot of thought before in a lot of my, with a lot of my clients was that FastSpring as a global brand, they're you can't make the assumptions that people are native English speakers. And so a lot of the ways that I would try to instill brand in the past using idioms and things like that would not work really well for an audience that might not understand that idiom. So then it's finding new ways of sounding casual, comfortable, sounding like somebody's friend without losing them in translation. So that's a big one. And I, I think sort of to Sean's point that I think it's always this challenge of like speaking to somebody's level. And obviously a lot of that is understanding who your specific audience is, right? Like so that you're not talking, you're not writing things that are so like elementary to them that they get bored, but you're also not writing over people's heads and losing them. And that I feel like that's just a constant challenge. And I think Part of that comes back to like, how do you test the content you're putting out to know what's hitting home, what's not, like what's moving people? Yeah, I think up to like my first probably six weeks with FastBrain, the entirety of the conversation was what's our ICP? And to be very honest, I don't think that we have the strongest representation of that. Sorry if you work for the company and you're watching, but I don't. And I think that that's something that we get excitedly enough to, to continue to build out. But the reality of it is, is I think it, it it's one of those things where it depends on who you ask, which by definition is not an ICP. And so I think understanding those elements is really where confusion can introduce itself. And it'll be interesting to see how we as a brand build and, and improve, but also with metric as we're establishing that and, and, and just seeing change over time, I think is super exciting. But to your point, I wouldn't want to be a content writer. No way. Go crazy. Go just to you both. <laughs> That's such a good point, though, because a big part of usability and content is ensuring, yeah, like, are you meeting your reader where they are? And that's one of the reasons why, at least for emails that we found in our data at Lavender, is you should be writing to a third to fifth grade reading level. And that's not to say, or I think fifth to seventh, like around there, depending on the, on the, on the month and the data, because it changes all the time. And that's not to say that you should be writing as if they're like a 10-year-old or dumbing it down. It just kind of gets back to the idea of clarity and simplicity and just being simple, 
I think as humans, like especially when we are writing online, we're trying to make ourselves look a certain way or present us a certain way or diving too deeply into a brand voice since you were talking like you were talking about that and just kind of sounding boastful or like using big words. Like you don't need to use big words to sound smart. And it's actually harder to write simply or to explain complex things and simple words or to write less. It's always been harder for me to be a copywriter and write ad copy than write a long form blog post or distilling a blog post down into a Twitter thread that's actually engaging and compelling. It's a lot harder to do that. And when we're just more simple with our writing, it's more accessible or there's just less friction to it. It's the same reason why we track all of that in Lavender when you're writing emails and then using tools like Hemingway. Like I've been doing this for like 12 plus years and I still use tools like Hemingway just because it it helps ensure that I'm being really concise and just writing simply. EJ is actually the one that got me on Hemingway. So I appreciate you doing that very much. Yeah, no, I think I'm working on something right now for, for metric that's rooted in kind of how... UX specifically, but designers approach mental modeling. We tend to think of a mental model or a cognitive load as being a way of, oh, I can use up that space. Analogy I use is if mom and dad are paying for your gas, you don't necessarily have to concern yourself with how far you go because they'll just get more gas. But if you're a starving college student and and <laughs> and gas is is really more of a luxury than than you know an expectation, then the reality of it is is you're way less likely to spend that gas unless it's really worth it. And so I think that as you get into like the term dumbing it down is almost one of those things where it's like people sometimes absolutely hate it and I, I advocate for it. And what I advocate for is not necessarily assuming that your reader is dumb because I would assume quite the opposite. If they're working with me, they're hyper intelligent because I'm great. No, but I think that there's an, there's an element there of, I want to dumb whatever I'm producing down so that way I can take as little of your bandwidth as possible. Because the truth of the matter is, is humans and the brain really, we approach our cognitive loads as more like it's a scarcity, not that it's a luxury or resource that we have in abundance. So we really do approach it. That's why we cut corners. That's why we have, I mean, there's a ton of psychology rooted in it that I won't make everyone fall asleep to. But the reality of it is your brain's already trying to do these things anyway. And so if you can make it easier for your user to not have to summarize or, or, or paraphrase your your content or copy or engagement or conversation goes a long way. goes a long way. We do the same thing in UX. The entire premise of UX. (laughs) Yeah, that's such a big point. Like you mentioned psychology going off on that psychology tangent being boring. Like it's not, it's fascinating. I think that is like the like crux of this whole conversation, right? Is like the, our psychology of how our brains work of humans. It's the same way, same reason why when you're walking down the street, you see like a carved path. That's, I think they call that like a, like a wanted path or there's like a phrase for that where instead of there's no path. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you see like the tracks that are just kind of created in the grass. Cause like we optimize everything for efficiency or shortcuts or just to do something quicker. I think it goes back to a lot of like survival roots and survival mechanisms from like centuries ago. But that's so important because it affects everything that we create as sellers and marketers, right? That's how we all consume things. And again, getting back to like the human element, like we forget that we're just like humans selling and communicating and marketing. Like we're all just humans doing the same things. And there's a lot of like psychology that plays into all of the tactics and we tend to forget that. Mm. Yeah, 100%. 
I love that like part of being user focused is just maintaining that curiosity of learning more about I mean, okay, we we all know the marketing, the typical marketing stuff of like learn their pain points and like build personas and things. But on a much more basic level, learning how users brain works and like what makes comprehension easier and things like that are going to make your message delivery so much easier. And it's not just about an ICP. It's just about how do people work. So I'm curious about that. Like, do you, do either of you have resources that come to mind that you think have made you better designers, UX specialists, marketers that just on learning how, how humans work? Oh man. Every, <laughs> Maybe that's every too big. You can always person. come back to me. <laughs> I'm going to wind it down, but any and every yeah. UX person is going to be like, I've already read that, but there's a, a book called The Design of Everyday Things. It's it's by Don Norman, I'm pretty sure. One of the Nielsen Normans, one of those two. I'm fairly certain it's Don Norman. And it is a hard read. But if you can get through the read and you can you can understand and, and comprehend what's being shared, it's really interesting. For lower hanging fruit, there is a I don't know the author, but it's it's the UX designers field notes or something along those lines. If we have show notes, I'll, I'll send you the link. But it's a small, relatively unknown book, and it's one of my favorites. It's like a crash course for UX principles. And the reality of it is, is I'm a big proponent for UX is not specific to product or app. I think it's it's actually the exact same thing that marketers are trying to do, that content is trying to do. It's just. Uh, we get a fancy word for it. I, I really believe that wholeheartedly. And then my last is Laws of UX. And that's actually, they have a PIP deck and I advocate against expensive things, but I will say the PIP deck is expensive and I would still advocate for purchasing it. But it's like a ton of like use cases around psychology principles that are based on white papers. So it's almost like summarizing that for us so that we can go summarize our content and our are creative in our apps and experiences better, but I'm a big reader. So I'm going to stop there. So that way we don't, again, make everyone fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think too, for anyone out there who's listening, who's maybe not a designer, or not in UX, writers especially can benefit so much from books like that. I, I can't remember the name of it, but I read a UX book when I worked in an agency and I was helping create websites and I was a content strategist helping like shape a page on a website. So I think that's really important to call out. I am fascinated by the brain and brain books. I've read all sorts of like Deepak Chopra books about the brain. So that's like one of my favorite resources, like checking out Deepak Chopra podcasts, Adam Grant podcasts. He really dives into the psychology of work, which is applicable to all aspects of every business, every function. Also want to shout out, there's a book called Nudge. I can't remember who wrote it, but there's like an elephant on the title um, page and it's brilliant. It really just talks about the psychology of like what you would call like a nudge and kind of like getting people to be motivated to, to do something, be compelled to do something, take an action. And then I would shout out to brilliant women on Twitter, honestly, who I learn a lot from about these subjects. Adrienne Barnes, she does a lot of customer and competitive intelligence, especially in B2B SaaS. And then Caitlin Bajorn, I'm probably saying her last name wrong. She, her focus is around like the psychology of, of humans and relating that to sales and marketing. And they're just brilliant. So those are big resources for me. 
Super exciting. Okay, last question for you both. If you could change one thing about B2B marketing that you think would just make things so much better, what would it be? I actually am fairly confident that this is the right answer. No, I'm just kidding. I think empowering a no in the in the sales cycle is probably one of the things that we we, we just lose. I think understanding that people, and this is part of the sales cycle, but I think it's also just in general marketing. And I, I really do feel like B2B marketing is 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 heavily rooted in sales in a good way, not a bad way. And I think that uh, allowing people to say no and, and encouraging people to say no if it's not a good fit is is really, really strong in a sales cycle, obviously. But I also think like getting feedback and usability and surveying with your content and surveying with your experience. You know, we're fortunate enough to live in a digital era where you can literally ask someone how they felt about something in the digital space. They can relay it. Um, I mean, I think we're actually all in SaaS, so we all know what an NPS score is and an ENPS score, and we all know what these elements are. So I think if you were able to, to really deploy a quantifiable element on how well something's doing from a quantitative perspective, where someone's asked to put it in their representation of how they feel uh, of what you've built, um, I think we're really afraid of criticism, but I think that level of engagement would be super beneficial. We do it with a lot of things. I just think that being able to ask users, did this site work for you is a luxury that we have that not enough brands take advantage of. And then the same with like content, right? I mean, exactly. you could yeah. ask every person that's read your content if they liked it or not, or what they would have done differently. I imagine that would give you a ton of insight on how you'd write moving forward if you wanted to write for them, you know, and maybe you don't, maybe that's the intention, but yeah. Asking feedback, I guess, is what I would summarize that as. <laughs> yeah, that's huge. I mean, using audience feedback to improve content quality and quality of all of your output is really important. Honestly, I love your your thought, Sean, on except like just being comfortable with like a no. That just kind of makes life easier for everyone involved and probably more efficient. And then you can move on, both the buyer and the seller. I don't know if I can top that. Honestly, I talk a lot about gated content and my issues with that. I think that goes hand in hand with the friction of usability we've been talking about. I think everyone's lives will be easier. Businesses will make more money and audiences will be happier and receive more help from brands if we stop creating friction specifically around gated content. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. no reason. I yeah. even saw something the other day where it was like, oh, like here are all of these templates you can have. And all we ask is your email like for free. Like, can you just give them to me? Like it would be so helpful and I would trust you so much more. If you could just give them to me, make my life easier. I could just access them real quick, use it, improve my day, move on. And then I have a positive impression of you and I know that you helped me. All right. I have to ask though, because I mean, anytime a content person advocates for ungating content, the natural follow-up from their leaders who are not sold on it is, well, then how do you start to pull people into the funnel? So do you have a response to that? Like do alternatives or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you want people to come into your content ecosystem, right? And the idea is they, you want to bring them into your ecosystem so that they buy when they're ready and you can nudge them when they are. But as a lot of my friends in 
at like Refine Labs as, a, as an example, say they're either in buying mode or they're not. Mm-hmm. So you can't force someone to buy. Like getting me to give you my email doesn't mean that I'm a prospect. I have no interest in actually using your product. It's really expensive. I'm not your ICP. Like I just, your content's helpful. Um, but if I have a positive impression of that brand, then I'm more likely to spread it via word of mouth to someone else who might be a prospect or an ICP. So to those people, I always say, like, if sales and marketing are not aligned on the key, on the same metrics, then your business is not going to do as well as it could, like, period. Sales and marketing need to be aligned on the same KPIs. It should be one team rowing in the same boat. And when that's possible, like, the results are there. And that's just... It's just how it is. That's like how it's worked everywhere that I've been, where we can align on the same metrics. Content can influence pipeline. Content can influence revenue. But it's very rarely the first touch or the last touch. It's a part of a journey and it's a long-term game. So if you're caught on like chasing MQLs and form fills and just adding people to your email list, I just think your head's kind of in the wrong space. I'm not saying that that's bad. But if you make it easy for people to consume your content, you're more likely to have them enter your ecosystem and droves and know that you're helpful and they can trust you. And you can still ask them to sign up for your newsletter, but make it clear on what you're doing. Say like, if you're inter- if you like this piece of content, like join our newsletter. And maybe I get that newsletter every week. And then maybe I move on to a new company where I'm like, hey, I can try that for free, the same company that I've been getting helpful content from for years. And that's just like one of many examples. I will say, though, I have learned that it's different for certain industries and personas. I have a friend who works in a certain very niche industry and their ICP are like a lot of engineers and they're fine with that process. Like, So I do 100% mm-hmm. want to recognize that it's different for certain personas and industries. But in the grand scheme of things... Like you just help people and like, they'll remember that. Yeah, totally. I think, sorry, this is my favorite thing. So I'm going to, I'm going to chime in, but I'm very passionate about this. The one word that yes. every team at a company will always say to you is to bring value. It doesn't matter if it's sales or marketing or operations. Right. And so I think it's kind of an oxymoron to feel like, oh, we got to bring value, but we have to hide that value behind a gate. It's one of those things of that's not true value, you're, that's an exchange. And so I think that if you pivoted the, the narrative, not you specifically, but if anyone pivots the narrative towards, oh, we just want to bring value and engage at a brand level. Again, I do think that's one of those things where we're seeing some shifts, which is great. I've had a, a leadership in marketing make a statement that was like, I think it was something along the lines of, we want to talk to every single person we can. And and it made me cringe because no, I don't. I want to talk to the people that want to like listen to what we have to say 100%. I don't want to waste someone's time. It's not of interest uh, to me or to them. Why, why waste someone's effort and cognitive load and make it inaccessible? And it's like, it's just a, it's an ongoing circle. <laughs> There's the whole it. thing of like, someone will never, someone may not remember exactly what you said, but they'll remember how they make you feel. Again, basic human psychology, like when we apply that to business, it works the same way. There's a certain hoarding mentality to like pipeline acquisition, right? Like that we have to get like the most amount of leads in and it usually then is not about the quality of leads or the readiness of leads, right? It's just it's just filling that quota as opposed to creating the positive, positive brand experience where 
they might not be ready, but two years from now, when they are, you know, or six months or whatever, right. you're right. you're the company that. But yeah, it's 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 a hard it's a hard battle to fight unless the top down is on board with that mentality. So, 100%. but de- it definitely seems like lavender is though for sure, right? I mean, like you know. Yeah, one. I mean, one hundred percent. Most of our business the last two years has been marketing led, so they're definitely bought into that. Even at Chili Piper, I think that's where I was previously. We had to have discussions around that as we were first building out our marketing team. And to your point around hoarding mentality, I think it feels almost like a crutch to gate content mm-hmm. because then it's like, oh, we at least have something to hang our hat on because a lot of marketing and content specifically, like to be fair, it takes some t- some time to bake, so to speak, to see results. So an attribution is difficult. So I think it's, it's around the mentality of like at least wanting to show something in the form of some data, but it's not really like, what is that really showing? So you can find ways around that now. Like there's all sorts of innovation around different attribution tools and and showing the long-term success of, of content and of marketing in general and showing that influence, I think is like, was like a key, mm-hmm. at least for us at Chili Piper, we could start to track how content was influencing deals and self-reported attribution helps with that too. For sure. Who do you want to talk to? Sean, specifically for you, you own Metric. You offer UX services, UX design, visual design. Who, who's, who do you want to talk to that, who, who needs your services? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question. I would say any, any software company that, that's looking to elevate the experience of, of either their marketing site or, or their app or whatever experience they have that's client customer facing. And to that point, we also do enterprise stuff. So theoretically, it doesn't even have to be seen by the average person. But I think a prerequisite for our our clients moving forward, and, and this is really what I found in Metricon, was you have to care about the product and the usability and, and the experience itself. If the intention is to build pipe because that's what you need your product to do with a product-like marketing campaign, then we're probably not, probably not the agency for you. And to be very honest, we're rooted in saying no. Um, so I'd rather say no to money than, than say yes to a project I don't want to provide. Chelsea. I love that conviction, Sean. Yeah, I'll, I'll be homeless. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> I refuse. Just me in a cardboard box with a laptop just waiting for that dream client. I agree. That's a very cool question. I want to talk to anyone out there who might be selling who isn't sure why their emails aren't hitting the mark. And when I say selling, I'm not saying sellers because anyone who might be selling something might have a different title, right? You might be a marketer, you might be a recruiter, you might be a job seeker. We're all kind of selling ourselves in different ways. So anyone who is struggling to, struggling or just unsure with the emails that you send, email, it's really funny that a lot of people still in 2023 have conversations around email being dead. It's a huge piece. It's just a, a huge piece of our communication. It's never going to go away. It's just like the telephone. The telephone's not going away. Yeah. <laughs> telephone's not going away. Email's not going away. And it's such an integral part of how we communicate as humans today. So anyone who is just looking for help with email, I want to talk to you. Sweet. And hit you I up think on we LinkedIn. just did, Chelsea. 
I think we yeah. really yeah. just... <laughs> I'm going to uh, talk to you more. Let's do it. Okay, we'll do more. <laughs> it's the best way to hit you up via LinkedIn, though. Or... Yep, find me on LinkedIn yep. or Twitter. Cool. Sean, same. Yeah, yeah. Wearmetric.com or LinkedIn's probably the, the spot that I hang out the most and post a lot of opinions. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks again. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is awesome.